The Eruptions in the West Indies by C.D. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Soon after the great eruptions in Martinique and St. Vincent last May, the Royal Society appointed a small commission to investigate the phenomena in both islands, and especially in St. Vincent. Dr. Tempest Anderson, a well-known student and photographer of volcanoes, and Dr. John S. Flett of Her Majesty's Geological Survey left London on May 28th. They arrived at Barbados on June 8th and proceeded to St. Vincent, where nearly four weeks were spent, chiefly at Chateau Belair and Georgetown, in the neighborhood of the Soufriere. Early in July, they visited Martinique for six days in order to ascertain the general points of difference and similarity between the outbursts of Mount Palais and the Soufriere, the phenomena in this island being studied by a French scientific commission under the directorship of Professor Lacroix. On their return to England, a preliminary report was presented to the Royal Society and was printed immediately in the proceedings. As some time must elapse before the complete report is published, we give here a summary of this first paper, quoting fully from the interesting account of the eruption of Mount Palais observed by the Commission on July 9th. The Eruption of the Soufriere The island of St. Vincent is oval in form, 18 miles long from north to south and 11 miles broad. The main axis is occupied by a mountain chain composed entirely of volcanic materials. In the south of the island, volcanic action has long been extinct or dormant, but at the north end stands the still active Soufriere. This mountain, which is 4,048 feet in height, is a simple cone like Vesuvius, without lateral or parasitic craters. Its principal crater, known as the Old Crater, is nearly circular in form. Before the recent eruption, it was nineteenths of a mile across and about 1,100 feet deep. The bottom was occupied by a lake, said to have been over 500 feet deep. On its northeast lip is a smaller crater, one-third of a mile in diameter, called the New Crater, as it is supposed to have originated in the eruption of 1812. The remains of a gigantic crater ring surround the cone on its north side, bearing the same relation to it that Soma does to Vesuvius. Deep valleys have been cut in the slopes of the mountain, especially on its southern side, and it is in these that the greater part of the ejecta of the recent eruption have collected. For more than a year before the eruption took place, the north part of the island was subject to frequent violent earthquakes, and as far back as February 1901, two settlements of the aboriginal Caribs were considering the advisability of deserting the district. About midday on Tuesday, May 6th, the first signs of the eruption were observed by residents on the southwest side of the mountain. At 2.40, there was a considerable explosion, and a large cloud of steam ascended into the air. At 5 p.m., a red glare was visible in the steam cloud on the summit. At midnight, there was a great outburst, and red flames were noticed on the lip of the crater. Next morning, gigantic mushroom-shaped clouds could be seen rising to a height of about 30,000 feet, and drifting away before the northeast trade wind. As the day advanced, the eruption increased in violence. By 10.30 a.m., enormous clouds of vapor were being emitted with loud noises, accompanied by much lightning, and it could be seen that the materials were mostly, if not entirely, discharged from the old crater. The activity now became continuous. Huge columns of vapor ascended with frequent violent outbursts, projecting showers of stones and mud on all sides, and chiefly to the east. At midday on Wednesday, May 7th, the slopes of the mountain were still green, though a layer of fine ash, just sufficient to give the leaves a grayish color, 
had fallen over the lower ground. About this time, it was noticed that steam was rising from some of the valleys on the south side of the mountain. Soon afterwards, the rivers Wallaboo and Rebecca on this side were seen rushing down in raging floods of boiling water, and the whole mountain became enveloped in a dense cloud of vapor. The crater lake seems to have been driven over the lower or south lip of the crater and to have poured down the valleys as a tremendous rush of boiling water to the sea. It is remarkable that, so far, the inhabitants on the east or windward side of the island had not realized their danger. As is frequently the case, the summit on this side was wrapped in cloud. Even on the morning of Wednesday, May 7th, sugar-making was in progress on several estates. By midday, however, all were convinced that the noises heard continuously were not due to a thunderstorm. But it was then too late to escape, for the Rabaka and other streams, usually dry except after rains, were running boiling hot and could not be crossed. It was here that the loss of life was greatest, the number of persons killed being estimated roughly at 2,000, including about a dozen white men. On the opposite side of the island, the loss was comparatively small. The view of the crater was clear, and the early outbursts of steam gave ample warning to the inhabitants, who fled along the coast to Chateau Belair and other places to the south. To return to the eruption, at 1 p.m. the roaring of the volcano was tremendous, and after the large outbursts, which took place every few minutes, volumes of vapor might be seen covering the whole area. So far, there was nothing abnormal in the eruption, and the destruction was confined to the higher parts of the mountain. But about 2 p.m. there was a rumbling and a large black outburst with showers of stones. A strange black cloud, laden with hot dust, swept down the mountainside, burying the country in hot sand, suffocating and burning all living creatures in its path, and devouring the rich vegetation of the hill with one burning blast. On the west coast, most of the inhabitants had escaped, but a few persons overtaken by the black cloud were killed or badly burned. One boat was near Richmond at the time the blast swept down. The heat is described as fearful. Hot sand rained into the boat, and the sea around was hissing with its heat. The darkness was so intense that a man could not see his hand. On the east side of the island, a dense black cloud was seen rolling with terrific velocity down the mountainside towards the sea, flashing with lightning, especially when it touched the water. All survivors state that it was intensely hot, and was charged with hot dust, and that it smelt strongly of sulfur. They felt as if something was compressing their throats, and as if there was no air to breathe. The suffocating cloud only lasted a few minutes, and by the time it had reached the coast, the sand it contained, though still at a very high temperature, did not set fire to wood or burn the clothes of those exposed to it. At some distance from the cloud, one observer describes it as a solid black wall of smoke falling into the sea about two or three miles from us. It looked like a promontory of solid land, but it rolled and tumbled and spread itself out until in a little time it extended quite eight miles over the sea to the west. Then began the most gorgeous display of lightning one could conceive. It was still bright daylight, but the whole atmosphere quivered and thundered with wavy lines intersecting one another like trellis work. We were encircled in a ring of fiery bayonets. Intense darkness now covered the whole north of St. Vincent. The roaring of the mountain was terrible. Fine ash and sand rained down over the whole country, with occasional showers of large stones, some of which were so hot as to set fire to the trash roofs of huts seven miles from the crater. 
The eruption, in all probability, had reassumed the ordinary phase, the showers of ash and stones being produced by violent upward explosions of steam. Shortly before nightfall, the darkness lessened slightly, but the rain of dust and the noises lasted till early on the following morning, May 8th. When day broke, the volcano was still emitting puffs of slaty-colored steam, and showers of fine dust were falling on the west side of the mountain. A week later, May 15th, the volcanic activity had apparently subsided, and the mountain remained clear and unclouded until Sunday, May 18th, when a second but much slighter eruption took place. The noises were as loud as before, the lightning very vivid, and ashes and sand fell freely for some hours. Clouds of steam were sometimes seen gently rising for some days later, but no further outburst took place until after the publication of the preliminary report. When the English Commission arrived in St. Vincent on June 10th, the Soufriere and the surrounding country to the south of Chateau Belair and Georgetown were still covered with a layer of ashes, mostly in the form of a fine sand, mixed with spongy bombs and many ejected blocks composed of fragments of the old rocks of the hill. The latter consist of weathered andesites and andesitic tufts, such as can be seen in the walls of the crater, some of them being more than five feet across. The larger bombs are often black, highly lustrous, and glassy when broken across. Some seen at Wallaboo, four miles from the crater, were three feet in diameter. The sand, when dry, is yellowish-gray in color, but when wet becomes almost black. It contains plagioclase felspar, hypersthene, augite, magnetite, and fragments of glass, and represents a fairly well-crystallized hypersthene andesite magma, which has been blown to powder by the expansion of occluded steam. Owing to the heavy tropical rains and the quick growth of vegetation, this deposit was rapidly disappearing. Around Georgetown, it was from one to three feet deep, in the Carib country, four feet, while on the higher slopes of the hill, where it had gathered in hollows, it reached a depth of from five to over twelve feet. Those who visited the country shortly after the first eruption described it as having a smooth, gently rolling surface, like that of blown sand. It is clear that immense quantities of hot sand had rushed down the hill into the valleys in an avalanche which carried with it a terrific blast and piled the ashes deep in the sheltered ravines, at the same time sweeping everything off the exposed ridges which lay between. For some days after the eruption, the stream valleys were level with their banks. But on May 24th and 25th, nearly eight inches of rain fell, and with this the rainy season set in. After a heavy tropical shower, valleys that were usually dry were occupied by a thundering torrent several feet deep and twenty or thirty feet across that soon swept away the ashes from the upper part of their channels. But in the lower valleys, which had been filled with thick masses of hot sand, the process of removal was still, in the middle of June, going on, and a curious spectacle was seen after every shower. The streams, by undermining their banks, caused landslides, and when the hot ash fell into the water, columns of muddy water rose to about 200 feet, carrying with them pieces of stone, while immense clouds of steam shot up to heights of 700 or 800 feet, expanding in great globular masses, exactly like the steam explosions from a crater. When Drs. Anderson and Flett ascended the Soufriere, there was the clearest evidence of the passage of a hot blast laden with sand. Near the shore on the east side, 
the sugarcane fields were covered with three or four feet of sand and scoria. The trees were all bare, a few branches broken, but no trees were uprooted or thrown down. At this point, the velocity of the blast was not above that of an ordinary gale, and the dust it carried, though hot, was not incandescent. At an elevation of about a thousand feet, a further stage of devastation was encountered. The fields were swept bare, the trees broken down, though not as a rule uprooted, their smaller branches swept away. A deep layer of black sand covered the crops of sugarcane. The blast was here, a violent gale. A little further up, enormous trees, even great cotton trees, ten feet or more in diameter, had been uprooted and cast down, the fallen trunks in every case pointing directly away from the crater. The smaller trees were sometimes swept away like straws. Most were charred, some deeply, but as the wood was green, only the smaller branches had been consumed. The effect was like that produced by a violent hurricane, only more complete, for many of these trees had withstood the hurricane that ruined St. Vincent in 1898. Still higher, or above the 1,500 feet level, there was little left of the rich tropical vegetation which had covered the mountain. Blackened remains of tree trunks were to be seen, overturned or broken off near the ground, and buried in dark sand. The highest parts of the mountain formed as bare and desolate a scene as could be imagined. The ash was five to twelve feet deep, and contained a good deal of burnt timber, utterly blackened and converted into charcoal. Everything was mown down, and there was nothing to show what was the velocity of the blast when it left the crater. The structural modifications produced upon the mountain were very slight. No fissures were seen, no parasitic craters or cones were formed, and there were no lava streams. Even the craters at the summit retain essentially their old configuration, though the outline of the lip of the crater, as seen from Chateau Belair, has undergone some slight changes, and the southern edge is somewhat lower than it was before the eruption. The inner slopes of the crater, formerly richly wooded, are now naked slopes or precipices of rock. The depth of the crater was generally estimated at about 1,600 feet. The bottom, when seen by the English Commission, was nearly flat or slightly cup-shaped and contained three small lakes of greenish and turbid water. The Eruption of Mount Pelée Mount Pelée, like the Soufrière, is a simple cone with a large vent near the summit and without parasitic craters. Both mountains are deeply scored with ravines, and on the southwest side of each there is a broad valley, occupied by St. Pierre, in the one case, and by the valley of the Wallaboo in the other. It is in these valleys that the destruction was most pronounced. In St. Vincent, however, the mass of material ejected and the area devastated were much greater than in Martinique. The loss of life was less, but this was due to the absence of a populous city at the foot of the Soufrière. On Mount Pelée, the blast that overwhelmed St. Pierre was emitted from a triangular fissure, which opened on the south side of the mountain. On the Soufrière, the blast came from the old orifices. The eruption in Martinique began with the flow of mud lavas, while none such were seen in St. Vincent. These are the chief points of difference between the two eruptions. On the other hand, both were characterized by a complete absence of lava streams and by the paroxysmal discharge of hot sand and dust mingled with a small proportion of bombs and ejected blocks. The hot blast which swept down on St. Pierre was similar to that emitted by the Soufrière. During their brief sojourn at Martinique, Messrs. Anderson and Flett 
were fortunate in witnessing one of the more important eruptions of Mount Pelée, evidently a counterpart of that which destroyed St. Pierre. On July 9th, they were near St. Pierre in a small sloop that had been hired for their expeditions. During the morning, the volcano was beautifully clear, and only occasional jets of steam rose from the triangular fissure that served as a crater. A little after midday, however, large steam clouds began to rise, one every ten or twenty minutes, with a low rumble. While they rose, they expanded, and, as they consisted of many globular rolling masses, they bore some resemblance to a gigantic cauliflower. About half-past six, it was obvious that the activity of the mountain was increasing. The cauliflower clouds were no longer detached, but arose in such rapid succession that they were blended in a continuous emission. A thick cloud of steam streamed away before the wind, so laden with dust that all the leeward side of the hill and the sea for six miles from the shore were covered with a dense pall of fine falling ash. Just before darkness closed in, we noticed a cloud which had in it something peculiar hanging over the lip of the fissure. At first glance, it resembled the globular cauliflower masses of steam. It was, however, darker in color and did not ascend in the air or float away, but retained its shape and slowly got larger and larger. After observing it for a short time, we concluded that it was traveling straight down the hill towards us, expanding somewhat as it came, but not rising in the air only rolling over the surface of the ground. It seemed to take some time to reach the sea, several minutes at least, and as it rolled over the bay, we could see that through it there played innumerable lightnings. As the darkness deepened, a dull red reflection was seen in the trade wind cloud which covered the mountain summit. This became brighter and brighter. Suddenly, the whole cloud was brightly illuminated. In an incredibly short space of time, a red-hot avalanche swept down to the sea. It was dull red with a billowy surface, reminding one of a snow avalanche. In it there were larger stones, which stood out as streaks of bright red, tumbling down and emitting showers of sparks. In a few minutes it was over. Undoubtedly the velocity was terrific. Had any building stood in its path, they would have been utterly wiped out, and no living creature could have survived that blast. Hardly had its red light faded when a rounded black cloud began to shape itself against the starlit sky exactly where the avalanche had been. The pale moonlight shining on it showed us that it was globular, with a bulging surface, covered with rounded, protuberant masses, which swelled and multiplied with a terrible energy. It rushed forward over the waters, directly towards us, boiling and changing its form every instant. In its face there sparkled innumerable lightnings. The cloud itself was black as night, dense and solid, and the flickering lightnings gave it an indescribably venomous appearance. It moved with great velocity, and as it approached, it got larger and larger, but it retained its rounded form. It did not spread out laterally. Neither did it rise into the air, but swept on over the sea in surging globular masses, coruscating with lightnings. When about a mile from us, it was perceptibly slowing down. We then estimated that it was two miles broad and about one mile high. It began to change its form. Fresh protuberances ceased to shoot out or grew but slowly. They were less globular, and the face of the cloud more nearly resembled a black curtain draped in folds. At the same time, it became paler and more gray in color, and for a time the surface shimmered in the moonlight like a piece of silk. The particles of ash were now settling down, 
and the white steam freed from entangled dust was beginning to rise into the air. The cloud still traveled forward, but now was mostly steam, and rose from the surface of the sea, passing over our heads in a great tongue-shaped mass, which in a few minutes was directly above us. Then stones, some as large as a chestnut, began to fall on the boat. They were followed by small pellets, which rattled on the deck like a shower of peas. In a minute or two, fine gray ash, moist and clinging together in small globules, poured down upon us. After that, for some time, there was a rain of dry gray ashes. But the cloud had lost most of its solid matter, and as it shot forward over our heads, it left us in a stratum of clear, pure air. The most peculiar feature of these eruptions, write Drs. Anderson and Flett in concluding their report, is the avalanche of incandescent sand and the great black cloud which accompanies it. The preliminary stages of the eruption, which may occupy a few days or only a few hours, consist of outbursts of steam, fine dust, and stones, and the discharge of the crater lakes as torrents of water or of mud. In them there is nothing unusual, but as soon as the throat of the crater is thoroughly cleared and the climax of the eruption is reached, a mass of incandescent lava rises and wells over the lip of the crater in the form of an avalanche of red-hot dust. It is a lava blown to pieces by the expansion of the gases it contains. It rushes down the slopes of the hill, carrying with it a terrific blast, which mows down everything in its path. The mixture of dust and gas behaves, in many ways, like a fluid. The exact chemical composition of these gases remains unsettled. They apparently consist principally of steam and sulfurous acid. There are many reasons which render it unlikely that they contain much oxygen, and they do not support respiration. End of The Eruptions in the West Indies by C.D. Knowledge, December 1902